I'll invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke 2. The light of the world. When we consider the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when we study the merging of historical events with prophetic promises, one of the most common themes that surrounds the coming of Christ is the theme of light. When we as born-again believers consider the relevance of Jesus Christ, His incarnation is actually somewhat lower on the list than our holidays would give credit to. We talked about that a little bit last week as we consider the, the, the Christians and holidays and our relationship to them and such. The most important element of Jesus most certainly was His death and resurrection. The work on the cross and then the victorious resurrection following. The next most thing, as far as importance to the, the Christian, would probably be Jesus' life and teachings. It is the cross and the resurrection that brings us to a point of salvation and understanding of, uh, of, of who God is and what He has done for us, and thus all that believe on Him are saved, believing in His finished work. And then it is the teachings of Jesus Christ, both in the Gospels and then as continued by the apostles of our Lord, that form the very foundation of how it is that we live our lives, so that we are called to embody Jesus' exhortation that we would take up our cross and follow Him. To this end, the actual birth of Jesus Christ itself is, is low on the list of priorities in a sense. In reality, Jesus' birth is significantly more a means to an end than it is an end in and of itself. That being said, however... I believe it would be a mistake to trivialize the purpose memorial of Jesus' birth, of the moment in history when the veil between heaven and earth parted and God took on flesh. And the reason why I say this is because, as we just sang about, when we sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel, so much of the very root of the identity of Jesus Christ, of the fact that He is who He said He was, is found in the prophetic realities that Jesus accomplished in the days, in the day of his birth, and then the days following his birth. Now, of all the prophetic concepts of which Jesus most assuredly fulfills, perhaps the most powerful idea is the piercing of the darkness with the light of life. And our account today is going to begin some six months before Jesus' birth, at the birth of the forerunner of our Messiah, John the Baptist. John was born under unique circumstances. The angel Gabriel had announced his birth and his special ministry to his father Zecharias while his father Zecharias was ministering in the temple at the time of prayer. You perhaps know the account. We'll talk more about that this evening as we read through it together. That's going to be the focus of our time this evening. And Zecharias was ministering in the temple at the time of prayer when the angel Gabriel appears to him and tells him that he would have a son and that this son would be the forerunner to Messiah. Zechariah chooses not to believe the angel. And to this end, he was made dumb, unable to speak. 
the angel Gabriel said, until such time that all that the angel had promised would be fulfilled. Well, what did he promise? He promised that, his, that, that Zechariah's wife in her old age would conceive because his prayers had been answered. He promised that, that she would uh, bring forth a son and that his name would be called John. So those were the promises. And Zechariah was not going to be able to speak until all of these promises came to pass. So nine months, of course, pass. Zechariah cannot speak. And then the child is born. On the eighth day after his birth, they circumcised the child. And it was uh, a custom within Israel based upon the law that on the eighth day when they circumcised the child, they would thus give the child his name. And so Zechariah's uh, wife, Elizabeth, says, we're going to name him John. And the relatives say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no one in your family named John. John is not a, not, not a family name. We'll just name him Zechariah for you. And, and she says, no, his name is John. And the family says, but that's not normal. That's not conventional. Let's ask dad. So they give dad a writing tablet. Dad, what is his name to be? And his, he writes, his name is John. And at that moment, Gabriel's prophecies are fulfilled, right? Not until that moment, which means the final link in the chain of Zechariah getting his, his ability to speak back is actually his own step of faith. He's the last link in that chain. And so he takes the step of faith and his mouth is opened and he begins to praise the Lord. And this is what he says, beginning in Luke 1, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he sware to our father Abraham that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, speaking to John, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So as Zechariah is filled with the Holy Ghost prophetically proclaims the importance of this child, not only the, the child that is before him, John, but the child of whom his son John would herald, we find in statements of prophecy that Christ is called the day spring from on high. We've talked about this, right? We talked about it as we sing these songs, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and such. The day spring meaning the spring of the day or a sunrise. The sunrise from on high. That's the idea here. Commissioned to give light unto those that sit in darkness. Commissioned to guide the feet of Israel into the way of peace. 
Notice how the concept of light is utilized in relation to Jesus Christ. The day spring from on high, the sunrise, the break of the sun above the horizon, which ushers in the light of day. My wife and I really enjoy uh, sunrise at our house. We've got uh, the lake across the street from us, and because there's an open patch there, you can see the houses on the other end. And with those houses, they're up on a hill a little bit, and because of the curvature of the earth, of course, the light hits that before it hits us. And so we can sit and, and watch as the light of those houses just gets lit up in the morning and that hill gets lit up across the way from us on the lake there. And that is the idea that the, the, the sun peaks over the horizon and the day spring from on high, uh, this, in this case just the day spring, illuminates the land. And that is what Christ was intended to be. The sunrise of the truth of God in a time where it had been deeply obscured. To give light to those who sat in darkness, the light would then guide the people into the way of peace. See, in order to be guided through the darkness, you need light. If you don't have light, you're tripping, you're falling, you're, you're, you're being misdirected, you don't know which way you're going. Christ came to bring the light that would guide God's people into peace. But that light would also come with some suffering, would come with some judgment. Something which we see in the prophetic link to this very title, The Day Spring from on High. This idea that Zechariah pulls from, that he is the day spring from on high, is directly linked to the final prophecy in the Old Testament before the, the period of darkness in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, Behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son, S-U-N, right? Not S-O-N. S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness, arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Unto you that fear my name, Malachi wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Verse 2 that promise of healing of the Son of Righteousness arising comes at a, a very stark contrast, does it not, to what we just read in verse 1. Verse 1 sp spoke of fire, the fire of God's judgment upon the unbelieving nations, contrasted heavily then with the rays of sunshine that would pour upon those that fear the name of God. And in this we find that this child on the day he was born signified the last leg in God's plan. The final hope of God's people and of all that would fear his name. The wicked would be trodden down. They would be ashes under the soles of the feet of the righteous in the day that the Lord will do these things. All of this consummated, of course, in that which we're studying right now, normally on our Sunday mornings, in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that this concept doesn't sound very Christmassy. The idea of, of the fiery judgment of the Lord. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what the angel said on the night of the Lord's birth. But here's the thing. 
in order to get to that peace, it would have to pass through the fires of judgment. And this child would be that judge. He would be that king. But he is also simultaneously the source of goodwill, that God has extended his hand to all and any who would come unto him, whosoever will may come and be saved from that judgment. And that all that fear his name, therefore, would bask in the light of the righteousness of God and would thus feel the healing rays of him upon their hearts. Zechariah declared this hope in that day as he anticipated Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 would speak of this as well, verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Notice the affliction there. Notice the suffering. But then in verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. This month we memorized Isaiah 9, 6, right? We've, we've spoken of that. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called at the end of that. Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Verse 7 goes on to say, And of the increase of his government and his peace there shall be no end. And as we think about this, this reality, the identity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as the one who would be the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Governor, the Counselor, the one, the one who is wonderful, that, that his government will increase and have no end. The beginning of this prophecy is rooted in these two verses. That there would be a day of grievous affliction for the nation that would give way to a light bringer who would come with healing in his wings. The one who would illuminate man's way to God. One who would shine the light of the truth into the way of darkness. Such was the ministry of the Christ. Such was the importance of the day that he came into this world and took on flesh. We return to Luke now. And I'm actually going to skip the uh, account proper of his birth. We will come back to that, as I mentioned tonight, as we talk a little bit more focused, uh, as we read through uh, the, the elements of, of the Christmas account um, combined with all of the prophetic promises. But I skipped to verse 22. And in verses 22 through 24 of Luke chapter 2, the Bible says this. And when the days of her purification, that would be Mary, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him, that would be Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So we pick up after the birth of Jesus proper. And as we do so, we actually find ourselves uh, following Mary and Joseph as they go to Israel, or excuse me, as they go to Jerusalem to dedicate him. Of course, um, the, the eighth day would have been the day that they circumcised him and that they named him Jesus, uh, which is the Greek rendition of the Hebrew name Joshua, right? So they name him Jesus, and then 40 days after his birth, because it would be 40 days uh, for the woman to be purified after the, the, the male child being born, according to the Old Testament law, there would be a process of them going to the temple in Jerusalem, 
And they would do this in order to redeem the child and dedicate him to the Lord in obedience to Old Testament law. Now, the principle here is related to the first fruits principle, but even more so to the principle of what happened during the 10th plague before the nation left the land of Egypt. In that 10th plague, all the firstborn males were killed that, did not, uh, that were not in a house that was underneath the doorpost where there was blood and, and uh, the Lord passed through the land that night and he said, if I see the blood, I will pass over you. If he did not see blood, then the firstborn male in that house would be killed on that night. So all of these children were delivered from this Passover through their faith and God said, now the firstborn of every family in Israel is mine. But if you want to redeem him back to yourself, then you may do so through this ceremonial process of giving this sacrifice. We read all of these things in Exodus chapter 13 verse 2. We read about it in Numbers chapter 3 verse 13. We also read about it in Numbers chapter 8 verses 16 and 17. So in verse 24 here, we see a, a second portion of the command given in Leviticus chapter 12 verse 8, which taught that though the child was dedicated to the Lord, he could be redeemed. And he was to be redeemed by the parents bringing either a lamb, or if the family was poor and could not afford a lamb, that they would bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to offer in its place. And this is what we find Mary and Joseph do here in the text, which does indicate to us that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. They were not well-to-do. They could not afford to bring the lamb, so they instead bring the pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And that is what they, they bring to redeem uh, Jesus, their firstborn son, there in the, in the temple. We continue in verses 25 and 26, and the Bible tells us this. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. We're thus introduced to a man named Simeon. And Simeon is described in the text as a man who is just and devout. And he's waiting for what the Bible calls the consolation of Israel. This word consolation is a word that means comfort. It also means advocate. So when the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our advocate, it's actually the root of this same word, paraclete, right? If you've heard that theological term, Jesus as the paraclete, um, it's, the, it's the same root here as when Simeon was just and devout, waiting for the consolation, the comfort, the advocate of Israel to come unto them. He was specifically looking for one thing that would help Israel in their distress. Now, without any further details, if we were just reading this historically and we read that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, without any further details, we would probably assume that this distress is the occupation of the Roman Empire over the land of Israel. This would have been probably the most distressing thing at the time in the land. Other than that, things were actually going pretty good for Israel at this time. Historically speaking, Israel was in a pretty good place. I mean, if you look at the, the several hundred years before the Roman occupation, things were pretty bad. When they were under the Syrian occupation, we've talked about Antiochus Epiphanes and how horrible he was to the land of Israel. And uh, we can think about Egypt and, and some of the, the, the bad things that happened in the days of Egypt. And you just keep going back and you have the, the Samaritans and all of the terrible things that they did. And it just it's not real good for Israel in the land. But now here they are. Things are stable. 
stable. They're under the stability and the power of the Roman Empire. And not only that, but Herod, in order to incur the favor of the Jews, builds them this immaculate temple complex. And so now they have this incredible temple complex. Before that, they were in a very humble one uh, since the days of Solomon, when Solomon had, had created the, the beautiful temple. That was torn down, that was destroyed, that was burned. And then the one that they created in its place after the captivity was very meager. Very humble. But now Herod has made this thing beautiful. He has made it grand. He has made it something that Israel can be proud of. On top of that, the leaders in Israel are Mosaic Law originalists. Right? You had the Sadducees who were the theological liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the, 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 the immaterial world. Uh, an, an entire sect of leaders in the land that had no interest in, uh, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in, in the afterlife. They didn't believe in any of those things. They were entirely materialist and humanist. But they weren't the ones in power. The ones in power were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were textualists. They were originalists. They believed the Mosaic Law as literally as possible. And so the Mosaic Law was being followed. The temple was there. Everything was going pretty good other than the fact, of course, that they were under Roman occupation. So we might be tempted to say, well, if Simeon is waiting for the thing that would console Israel, that he's waiting for the thing or the one, perhaps, who would rid them of this scourge of Roman occupation. But what's interesting is that as we see Simeon speak toward this consolation, he's not going to say anything about Rome. In fact, his perspective is going to be very different about what it means that this one would come to comfort, to advocate on behalf of Israel. So God had told Simeon that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. The word Christ is a word in the Greek that simply means anointed. Its Old Testament counterpart would be Messiah. We actually only see that one time in the entire Old Testament. Usually it's just anointed or the anointed one. Uh, Saul was an anointed one. David was an anointed one, right? But we have this promise in Daniel of an anointed one, the Messiah who would come, and that's who Simeon was waiting for, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ. So we continue in verses 27 and 28. And he, that would be Simeon, came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the customs of the law, then took he him up in his arms, so Simeon takes Jesus up, and blessed God and said. So Simeon sees this child, and immediately through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his, in his life, he says, this is the one, this is the child, this is the Lord's anointed. Now that's a pretty important thing, isn't it? It's a pretty important thing for us to understand that in that day, there were people directly identifying this child as the Messiah. And let's read what Simeon has to say about Jesus. He prays, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. So Simon, excuse me, Simeon describes the child as God's salvation. And he says specifically that he would be a light to lighten the Gentiles and that he would thus be the glory of God's people Israel. That Messiah would come, here it is again, bearing the light. That's what we're talking about today. 
We're talking about the one who would come to bear the light. The Old Testament makes it clear that the light would shine not just to the Jews, but to all nations. And Simeon makes this link clear as he holds this little child on that day. That the child in his hands was the Lord's salvation and this child would grow to represent the Lord for all peoples. Of which, again, we read in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 through 8. Thus saith God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand. I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. The one that would bring the light to the Gentiles, the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 42, would bring the prisoners out of the prison, would set the captives free. The light would shine into the hearts of the hurting, into the lives of the sorrowful, and would bring to them the healing that Malachi would say would come from the day spring on, from on high that would bring healing in his wings. And the Lord would be glorified. What is it? That would bring all of this. What is it that would accomplish all of this? Certainly Jesus Christ, but the light that he would bring. We see a similar thing in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 5. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness, great darkness, the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see, all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Thy sons come from far, and thy daughters shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see, and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. Once again here we see, as we've seen in Revelation, the correspondence between the Gentile world and the sea. Remember, we've talked about that many times. Here again we see the promise that the light would shine into the world and that the Gentile world would come to that light. So in a moment of Holy Spirit-induced prophetic utterance, Simeon sees beyond the ministry of Christ to be the light bringer to his own people. And he reveals that Christ would be the light bringer to the whole world. And this is why the birth of Christ is so significant, right? This is the point. This is why anything that we do in this season, that we do matters. This is what we are attempting to remember. This is what we're trying to bring others to remember. That the people who walked in darkness saw a great light, and that light ushered in a fundamental shift in the very way that the world operates which is why we have our calendar set up the way we do. We have B.C., well, at least we used to, right? Scientists are attempting to take Christ out of that too, but B.C., before Christ, now it's B.C.E., before Common Era, and then A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, 
Now it's CE, common era, because they're trying to take Christ out of everything. But the fact of the matter is, no matter whether or not they change the initials, they can't change the fact that there's a zero on that calendar. And that zero still means something. Was Jesus actually born at that zero? Probably not. He's probably born at about 3 BC. But that zero still means something, and they can't get rid of that. Jesus fundamentally changed the very course of history as he brought the light. The world was about to change, and Simeon knew that. Simeon was told he would not die until he saw that change bringer. And it began when a virgin brought forth a child whose name was called Jesus. The prophets of old preached this light, they bore record of this light. They promised the light. They even died sometimes for that light. And here was the light. Such is the testimony of the Gospel of John. John 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended, apprehended, received it not. Jesus came to shine the light into the world. It lightened every man that came into the world. So Jesus would grow. He would begin his ministry. And there was a day where a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus. John chapter 3. And Nicodemus asked about this teaching. He says, I know you're a teacher come from God, Nicodemus said to Jesus. And Jesus said, you must be born again. How is that possible? Can a man be born a second time? Can he go into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. And then he would go on to say this, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. What is this condemnation? He that believeth not is condemned already. What is the condemnation? That light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Jesus came, and he tells Nicodemus, I am the light of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, man has a problem. And the problem is that we rest in darkness. Like the prophecies that we've read, they that rested in darkness saw a marvelous light. The problem is we are sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. And because you are a sinner and I'm a sinner, because we've come short of the glory of God, that means, as Romans 6 tells us, the wages of sin is death. Death is separation. 
Whether that be physical death, which is the separation of the material from the immaterial, or as in this case, spiritual death, a separation of our spirits designed to commune with our Creator, with God. We are designed by God to have a personal relationship with the one who created us, but we can't because we are sinners, and God hates sin. God is holy. You are not. God is perfect. You are not. And a perfect and holy God cannot have a relationship with a sinful man. And on top of that, a perfect and holy God who has created an eternity in heaven can most certainly not allow a sinful man into that heaven. Cannot allow an unholy person into that heaven. Heaven is for the perfect. Well, that's a real problem because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. Nobody is perfect, which means none of us can get to heaven. The very first time I offended God's word, God's will, God's character, I proved that I was unworthy for heaven. But God so loved the world. God loved you. God loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son. That light broke into that darkness that God sent a light bringer in the person of his son who is God in flesh Jesus said John 1 for, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14 the word who was God was made flesh and dwelt among us and God sent that son to live a perfect life never once having sinned and because he never once having having sinned he was qualified to bear my sin. I can't bear your sin. You can't bear my sin. I've got my own sin to worry about. But what if one came who was perfect, who was sinless? Could he say, Lord, place their sin on me? He could. He did. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, the Father, hath made him, the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God took the sin of the world and he placed it on Jesus. He cursed Jesus. He made Christ sin for us that he might secure the possibility that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. An exchange, as it were. Christ takes our sin and gives us instead his righteousness so that all who are clothed in his righteousness are cleansed from their sins and thus are qualified first to have a personal relationship with their creator and second to have an eternal home in heaven because they are no longer seen as unrighteous. They are justified. They are declared righteous legally through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus tell us? What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever recognizes that they are a sinner understands full well that there is nothing that you can do to get yourself to heaven. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't deserve it. You can't be worthy of it. You can't get there on your own. A priest can't do it for you. An ordinance or sacrament can't do it for you. Those things can't get you to heaven. But whosoever, the Bible says, will, recognizing they're a sinner, 
believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Set aside anything and everything else that they might be trusting in to get themselves to heaven, to make themselves right with God, and trust in Jesus Christ alone, exclusively to be their salvation, he will have, the Bible says, everlasting life. A life that will have no end. Now, does that mean that you won't physically die? No, that's not the point. Remember, we talked about death in two different aspects. There's the physical death and the spiritual death. Well, there's also physical life and spiritual life. Jesus promises that all who would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved will have spiritual life everlasting. Eternity in fellowship with God. Eternity in the abode of God that is heaven. We'll talk about that more as we get into Revelation starting uh, up here at the, in the new year again. That's the promise. And to all who refuse, see, he that believeth is not condemned. The condemnation is that light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. You say, but I love my deeds. I love my evil deeds. Well, that's the condemnation. That's the condemnation. But whosoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. But they that believe not, that is the condemnation. He that believeth not is condemned because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. What is that condemnation? It's an eternity of death. Conscious separation from God in a place of conscious torment that we know of as the lake of fire. Jesus came to bring that message into the world to manifest the light and to bring others to that light. Where would you be without God's light? Where would this world be without God's light? Perhaps today you know. Perhaps today you are resting outside of God's light. Would you today believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved? Would you today make that decision to set aside anything and everything else that you've been trusting in to make yourself right with God and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Have that personal relationship with Him to allow the light of life, that the day spring from on high that arises with healing in His wings, to heal you, to cleanse your heart of unrighteousness. For we who have accepted Christ as our Savior, that light shined into our darkness. And when it did so, it changed you, didn't it? You've been changed. You've been cleansed. You've been made a partaker of the healing that the prophets foretold so many years ago. Jesus would testify of himself as the light bringer several times within his ministry. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Follow me, Jesus says. Take up your cross and follow me, and you will have the light of life. Jesus would say again in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 36. While ye have light, believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. Verse 37, But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Verse 44, Jesus cried and said, He that believeth on me believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. See, Jesus was a light bringer. He came to declare the light, the light of the Father, the truth of God's word. And he that seeth me Seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world, Jesus said, 
that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. The word of God made flesh. Come as the day spring from on high with healing in his wings to call people out of the darkness into his marvelous light. And within this season, we sing and we give gifts and we celebrate with merriment and with mirth. And we do so in loving memory of the day when the God who loved us sent to us the true light. A child born, a son who was given, the child who would become a man, the man whose words would call other men to his light, a light that would be lifted up to be extinguished only to shine all the brighter in a glorious resurrection until the day when he returns, eyes aflame with fire, shining the glorious light of truth and of righteousness with which he will judge and make war. All of which began on that inconspicuous night long ago when the eternal God was made in the likeness of man, clothing himself in our weakness, clothing himself in our likeness, taking upon him the form of a servant. And there's coming a day when Jesus, who came that first time in this inconspicuous and humble fashion, will return. Now it'll be a few weeks before we get to Revelation 21, but let me give you a sneak preview. See, because the light doesn't end, even with the glorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21, John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, and he sees the streets of gold, and he sees uh, the trees of life, and he sees the gates of pearl, and he sees the foundations of precious stones, and he sees all of these things. And then he says this in verse 23 of Revelation 21. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it, and the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Today, Jesus is the metaphorical light of the world, shining the metaphorical light of truth into the hearts of men. We receive those truths and they change us from the inside out, but there is coming a day when the glory of the Savior, who is the Lamb of God, will be the thing that lights the world. And all men will walk in the light of the glory of the Lamb. On that day, every believer will partake in His light and walk in His light because He will be the light. And the question is, will you be there? The question is, are you walking in his light? Are you a partaker in his light? And that brings us to two applications this morning. Point number one, in this season, we remember the impact of Christ's birth. Don't allow yourself to be distracted from the importance of the moment when God became flesh. The birth of Christ is the beginning of the most important period of time in history. So much so, as I mentioned, it even defines our calendar. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 3.16 that the great mystery of godliness is that God was manifest in flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The first element of the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in flesh. 
It's difficult in this time of history to celebrate this season. We talked about that last week. Some of you have been in conflict about that. I understand that. I can appreciate that and respect you for that. Materialism, godlessness have stripped Christmas of much val- of any value in culture. In the church, controver- controversies abound about these things. What do we and what don't we want coming into our homes, into the minds of our children? But as we talked last week, if we as believers are going to celebrate anything, regardless of when we do it or how, it seems to be that celebrating the incarnation of God, the incarnation of the God of the universe, when God was made flesh, that mystery of godliness should be pretty high up on the list of things. Celebrating Christ's birth every year makes sense. makes a whole lot more sense than celebrating my birth, right? (laughs) You know, in, in a manner of speaking. Who am I, right? Why, why, why should I celebrate my own birth but not my Lord's? Nations come, nations go. We celebrate the birth of our country. But the impact of Christ upon this world has been history-defining in a way nothing else has. And the best part is it's only a taste of the glory that will come. So in this season, we remember the impact of Christ's birth, the light that would shine into the darkness even some 2,000 years later shined into our hearts. Second point. In this season, we renew our determination to bear that light to the world. We've already talked about the gospel. If you've not received the gospel of Jesus Christ, I encourage you, make that decision today. Get that right today. Invite the light of life into your heart today. But for we who are in Christ, the Bible has many commands about us as it relates to light. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God commanded the light. Let there be light, Genesis 1 says, and there was light. He also has shined it in our hearts that we may know of Christ. To what end? 1 John chapter 2, verses 8-10, through 10, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because darkness hath blinded his eyes. Thus we find that the call is that if we have had the light shined unto us, then we should walk in it. Has the light of life shined into your heart? Has the light of life shined into your life? Can you recall the time, the day? Can you recall when you accepted Christ as your Savior? Can you recall what the Lord began doing in your heart on that day? Can you look back and see that that idea, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and such were some of you as it related to the sins of this world, but now you are sanctified, you are justified, you are washed, you are cleansed. Now the question is, are you walking in that light? We're called to. We're called to individually. We're called to as a church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, 
but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You're a child of the light. You've been called into his marvelous light. Are you walking in that light? Are you experiencing the light of life? Paul told the church in Philippi, as he called them to live in a manner that became peace one with another. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You seeing the theme? Jesus came and brought his light that we might shine it all the brighter to the world around us. So Jesus would say in his Sermon on the Mount, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Is this you today? This is what Christmas ought to do. And if Christmas isn't doing this, then Christmas isn't doing its, its thing. It's not accomplishing its purpose. The light that came into the world, that shed abroad in our hearts, so that we might shed that same light to the world that is around us, so that we might shed the light, others might see that light, and glorify our, fathers, which are, our Father which is in heaven. Is that you today? Is that how you're living your life? Is that the manner that those that interact with you on a daily and a weekly basis, is that the manner in which they interact with you? Can they see that there's anything different at all? Do they know that you're a believer? Does the fact that you're a believer define you? It's not just a coat that you put on and take off when you want. It is the very core of your being. This is what Jesus Christ saved us to be. We are not called to be our own little sources of light. Rather, we are called, kind of like the moon, to reflect God's light. His light is within us. His light shines forth. The question is, is it shining brightly? Is that, can, is that candle on a candlestick? Or is it under the bushel? How's your testimony for Christ? As we celebrate the light of life in this season, by whom we have believed, through whom we have been made whole, we are renewed in the remembrance that we now serve a higher purpose in the darkness of this world. We're not just floating through this existence, getting houses and stuff and making it and providing and such. We exist to shine the light of the glorious gospel into the darkest corners of this globe that all might hear that all might know that they don't have to walk in darkness. They do walk in darkness, but they don't have to. They are being ravaged by sin, but it, sin doesn't have to have power over them any longer. That's our message. That's what we have to offer, and we have it to offer because God sent His Son a couple thousand years ago 
God in flesh to break through into the darkness of this world and to bring that light and then to purchase that light in his own body. How are you doing today? The light of life has come and may this season be one of joy. May it be one of cheer and of life and of love. Not because that's what tradition dictates, but because that is what the reminder of Christ's birth wells up in our hearts. A reminder to give out to others what Christ has, brought, has given to us, to put out what Christ has put in. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.